This is the drumming of the Iwe people from the African nation of Ghana. It is complex yet elegant and soulful. It employs many sophisticated techniques, one such being the cross rhythm. Cross rhythm is a simultaneous use of contrasting rhythmic patterns within the same scheme of accents or meter. We hear this in electronic dance music quite a bit, but it can take a lifetime for a person to actually master this style of percussion. And Rocky Dijon was truly a master. Born Kwasi Zidzornu, an Iwe from Ghana, Rocky's love for drumming took him out of Africa with a yearning to share his passion for percussion with the rest of the world. As a very young man in the 1960s, he stowed away on a boat bound for Europe, nearly dying from dehydration and starvation. But once Rocky introduced Iwe drumming to the Brits, a new age had begun. That percussion you hear all over the Rolling Stones, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, on the track Sympathy for the Devil, notably, that is Rocky. The word iconic is woefully overused, but I think it stands to reason that Rocky's percussion tracks are truly iconic and define the forward trajectory of the Rolling Stones' rhythms in the late 1960s and 1970s. Rocky Dijon appeared on records by Billy Preston, Stevie Wonder, and one of my favorite folk singers of all time, Nick Drake. Without him, the very soul of some of our most beloved pop recordings would have been lost forever. How beautiful and fitting that this soul came from Africa and from a man that risked so much to teach us everything we didn't know about rock and roll. My name is Micah McKee. I'm a songwriter, and this is American 100. Broadcasting from the musical center of the universe into the vast stretches of the universe, this is American 100. Welcome to American 100, the show about the random and not-so-random beauty of pop music. This is my ever-loyal robot companion, Rando. Hello, humans. And at the end of every episode, Rando selects two songs and a year from the Billboard Year End Hot 100 chart for us to discuss on the following episode. And at the end of the last episode, Rando selected the year 1968 and the numbers 54 and 21, which correlate with Take Time to Know Her by Percy Sledge and The Horse by Cliff Nobles. So without further ado, let's go back to 1968. Actually, let's go back even farther. Both country and soul music come from a yearning to be one with the divine. Both emerged from the American church, but because of racism, they were destined to live separately from one another. Music, however, doesn't always play by the rules of destiny.
This is possibly the most famous traditional gospel hymn of all time, written by John Newton, a former slave trader turned abolitionist. For the longest time, Amazing Grace was just a collection of lyrics, and over the decades, it became associated with some 30 melodies. It wasn't until 1835 when William Walker set Amazing Grace to a tune called New Britain that this inspirational piece finally emerged. Songs like Amazing Grace were simpler, catchier, and easier to understand than traditional church hymns. And later, these kinds of songs found themselves nestled in the songbooks of Christian worshipers known as revivalists. Revivalists like the Holiness and Pentecostal churches, with services lit by torch and moonlight and dewy fields and tents. Singing was central to these proceedings, the voices they rang out in fervor, zeal, and passion. Instead of the Holy Spirit being some unattainable, mysterious force, early Pentecostal worshipers endeavored to bond with the Holy Spirit on a deeply personal and intimate level through the power of the human voice. And though Southern white Christianity adopted many of these gospel hymns as their own, much of them were first compiled and arranged in the urban north by Philip Bliss, a man from Pennsylvania and a former Union soldier. Gospel music has its roots in pain, escape, and ecstasy. The Negro spiritual, which emerged out of slavery and wove its way seamlessly into black churches, is the foundation of black gospel. The late 19th century was where the Negro spiritual became retooled as gospel music, as black people now lived in the bizarre netherworld between enslavement and emancipation. Yet again, the Pentecostal church found itself at the heart of American gospel music. In fact, some Pentecostalism had a tradition of multiracialism. The loose outdoor gatherings that Pentecostals had engaged in had very real usefulness to black worshipers who had to socially distance from white worshipers. And there seemed to be an actual interchange of theological and musical ideas between black folks and white folks quite frequently. By 1906, William Seymour, the son of emancipated slaves, had become a prominent leader in the Pentecostal church. He held what is known as the Azusa Street Revival in downtown Los Angeles. Seymour drew worshipers from all over, black and white, singing together in ecstatic harmony. Seymour's mentor, however, Charles Parham, didn't like what he saw. 
to say the least. Parham was a clan sympathizer, and he drew a line in the sand. Shortly thereafter, there were two large Pentecostal denominations, one white and one black. The music that was forged in black churches, however, flourished in the world of the blues. And the Pentecostal church ended up giving us one of our very first recorded popular gospel musicians, the godmother of soul and rock and roll, Sister Rosetta Tharp. Country music was originally called hillbilly music, and though its themes and motifs come directly from the intermingling of black and white gospel traditions, Record labels intentionally drove a wedge between black folks and white folks by marketing country music exclusively to whites that lived or had lived in the American South. They attempted to do the same kind of thing with blues and R&B records, marketing these quote-unquote race records to black folks. The term soul music was used to describe a rapidly growing amalgamation of gospel, blues, and R&B, a new kind of popular music. It was destined to become the next great prominent black genre and the black answer to country. The lines between soul and country seemed clear and well-defined, their audiences segregated by race and geography. It would take a genius to bring them together. Few pop artists were as compellingly natural as Ray Charles. His grasp of melody and tone has nary a rival. And in the early 1960s, he set out to marry country and soul in a completely authentic and refreshing fashion. But sleep won't come. There was no gimmick, no 10-gallon hat, no pandering to hillbillies or some misplaced sense of Southern nationalism. Ray Charles's take on country music was born out of a keen understanding that country music was black as well as white, urban as well as rural, and that its roots were far deeper than most label executives cared to give it credit for. Like 
There were many musicians that took these styles of music and blended them, but few were as successful as Ray Charles. Perhaps it's because he was just so damn good at it. By the mid-1960s, the country soul marriage had a real shot at making it, and much of that we owe to Ray Charles. The way Around the same time that Ray Charles reinvented country music by exposing its soulful gospel roots for all to see, four white kids from Liverpool compulsively immersed themselves in black American music. The Beatles' performance on The Ed Sullivan Show in 1964 had a seismic influence on all Western pop culture after it, and it had an especially pivotal influence on one Stephen Allen Davis. Davis grew up in Hendersonville, Tennessee, home of Johnny Cash and June Carter Cash's family estate. Stephen Davis saw that famed Beatles performance and it changed his entire trajectory. As a youth, Davis was into sports, football, basketball, water skiing. But after the Beatles' invasion, he decided he would become a songwriter and a musician. Davis wrote country songs, but their structure and feel were informed by deep soul. And so it was that one of his compositions fell into the lap of one of soul music's most powerful vocalists. Written by Stephen Davis, performed by Percy Sledge, and recorded in the great rock and roll mecca of Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Take Time to Know Her charted at number 54 on the Billboard Year End Hot 100 in 1968. You might recognize Percy Sledge from the classic soul ballad, When a Man Loves a Woman. And here, with Take Time to Know Her, He's snugly in familiar territory with his melodramatic tune. I took her home to Mama. Mama wanted to see my future bride. The lyrical content of this composition is extremely antiquated. What with the well-worn trope of the unfaithful new bride. But the song's sound is what's most important here. It represents the ways in which country and soul can exist as one. In fact, the Muscle Shoals sound was integral to this marriage, with its down-to-earth production, its country-fried R&B aesthetic, and the great fame studio house band. This house band was truly unique because its players were versed in country and R&B alike. The distinctive organ sounds of Spooner Oldham, the lilting guitar work of Eddie Hinton, and the impossibly laid-back drumming of the late Roger Hawkins. He looked at us both and then he 
These players grew up in the American South and understood the threads that bound country and soul music and brought that education to the studio with track after track. Percy Sledge, of course, grew up singing in the church, so his education was essential to bringing this slow-burning R&B track to life. Take Time to Know Her, like Georgia on My Mind, illustrates the razor's edge upon which the worlds of country, soul, and gospel reside. Gospel music, country music, American soul, rhythm and blues. Though mere mortals have tried to keep them separate for decades, higher powers have brought them together time and time again. They are tributaries in an ever-flowing river of spiritual musicality. These twisting, winding arteries help us to understand American music. Much like our great ancestors sought to understand themselves and maybe reach out and grab a piece of the divine. Coming up, no lyrics, no problem. You're listening to American 100. Hey folks, thanks for listening to American 100. I'm Micah McKee and I wrote the original music for this show and produced it along with Asher Griffith. And if you like content like this, then uh, think about dropping something in our jar. Head over to patreon.com slash cicada radio. Even a pledge of as little as a dollar a month means the world to us. We do this show because we love music and we love radio. So head to patreon.com slash cicada radio and uh, help us out if you can. Thanks. What makes a great pop instrumental? How does a songwriter connect with an audience by telling a story without words? The world of the pop instrumental has had a curious history in America, and in this segment, I'd like to find out the secret behind moving a listener without using lyrics.
this goofy, freewheeling tune is one of the most influential songs in American history. It's Tequila by The Champs. Released in 1958, it was the very first instrumental pop hit on the Billboard charts. This song ushered in an era of instrumental tunes on the pop charts, and the 1960s would become the pinnacle of popularity for instrumental songs in America. Very often, instrumental compositions find popularity by being associated with a film or television show. But soundtracks aren't the only avenues by which instrumental compositions reach the masses. In the 1960s and 70s, soul and R&B instrumentals had their time in the sun. Tunes like Soulful Strut, Grazing in the Grass, and the ubiquitous classic Green Onions. Soul music thrives on groove and dynamic. Like its descendants, disco and funk, soul music doesn't need to tell a story as much as it needs to evoke emotion, pleasure, and rhythm. In fact, one could say that rhythm is the story. age of instrumental hits, Quincy Jones was a master melodic and rhythmic storyteller, stretching the boundaries of soul and jazz while remaining accessible and achieving mainstream success. Not all of Quincy Jones' compositions are devoid of lyrics, but his best and most memorable are... Eleanor Rigby is a masterwork of poetic ornament, but stripped of its lyrics, it touches a stranger, deeper part of the listener's brain. The human voice, while extremely important as an instrument in pop music, can sometimes constrict the imagination. Even in music, some things are better left unsaid. In 1968, Cliff Nobles, an up-and-coming soul singer from Alabama, 
learned this lesson when recording Love Is Alright. Now, the B-side to this song, Love Is Alright, was simply the same song minus the vocal track. It was perhaps meant to be a throwaway, but it ended up being a hit in its own right and the number 21 song on the Billboard year-end Hot 100 of 1968. This is the instrumental version of Cliff Noble's Love Is All Right, officially named The Horse. It's strangely more dynamic than the vocal version, has more of a deliberate groove, and welcomes the listener simultaneously with ease as well as urgency. The Horse is what happens when we allow the instruments to take the wheel in a pop song. It feels almost like a soulful superhero swooping in to save the day. Or maybe it feels like a suave secret agent stopping in for a game of poker at a hip casino. It can feel like all of these things because instrumental pop songs, really good ones, open up our imagination. This drum and bass breakdown just has so much more import as an instrumental section. Whereas Cliff Noble's vocal track on Love Is Alright keeps a tight rein on the instrumental arrangement, the horse lets the reins loose and the song is able to run wild. And I suppose this is what makes a great instrumental pop song. When a songwriter can give the listener the freedom to find their own voice. Nobles sold one million copies of The Horse within its first three months. He would never have another hit quite this big ever again. There's more after the break. You're listening to American 100. Can you tell me your name uh, and what it is that you do for your work? Uh, my name is Brad Spiegel, and I'm a resilience planner for the Louisiana Watershed Initiative. On the first episode of River Runs Backwards, we covered the concept of watersheds with our expert, Bradley Spiegel. He took us on a tour of his neighborhood where the city is implementing a project using the concept of something called green infrastructure to mitigate flooding. I'd love to show you. All right, let's go. <laughs> However, we were not able to take a deep dive into the material that day. But luckily for y'all, we recorded the whole thing. Is this cool? 
That's cool. <laughs> now we offer Brad's entire interview as a little bit of land yap for our Patreon subscribers. That this house is much higher than what we're standing on in the street. Uh oh. Gunshot or firework? Firework. Firework. Yeah, firework. <laughs> the good and the bad. Just go to patreon.com slash cicada radio. Even as little as a dollar a month means the world to us. Plus, you'll get swag. And don't forget to subscribe to River Runs Backwards wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Rando, what's that time again? Time to randomly select the year and the two songs that we are going to talk about on the next episode of American 100. Commencing randomization. The year 2007 and the numbers 24 and 76. Which correlate with How to Save a Life by The Fray and No One by Alicia Keys. American 100 is produced by me, Micah McKee, along with Asher Griffith, and is presented by Cicada Radio. And in honor of the great percussionist Rocky Dijon, I leave you with Cello Song by Nick Drake. From all of us at American 100, thanks for listening, and always keep a song in your heart. This is Cicada Radio. Sing, love, die.